<clears throat> okay, so for several chapters now in the book of Joshua, we have uh, been going through the territory of the promised land and uh, allotting it to the different tribes of Israel. The you know, first half of Joshua is essentially the conquest of the land, and this section has largely been uh, who gets what in the land. And we've made little comments about the different tribes as we've gone through and seen, oh, well, Issachar gets this and Asher gets this, and we made comments about it, and we finally come now to the Levites. And we've mentioned them a little bit before, um, so I won't kind of redo those uh, messages about the Levites, but here they come last for the very reason that they don't technically get uh, a portion of the land carved out for them the way that the other tribes did. Rather, the Levites, owing to their special role uh, in, amongst the 12 tribes, they are going to be allotted cities and pasture lands within the territories of the other tribes, and uh, essentially they'll be sharing cities with their kinsmen, with their brother tribes. All right. Now, if you look at the back of your handout, you can, you can see how that uh, geographically lays out and in this sense, a, uh, a picture is worth a chapter. Um, most of what we're, we're seeing here, and again, just for sake of time, I'm not going to read through the whole chapter, but you can rehearse it for yourself at home. You get down, you know, have some candles lit and just recite Joshua 21 and, and, uh, and practice your, your Hebrew. Um, this, this, uh, this chapter is essentially wrapped up in that picture. So here it's helpful if you're listening to this. Uh, online or watching it on YouTube or something, just you can Google the territories uh, allotted to the Levites and, and see the picture. But what is important about them, I'm going to basically, we're going to talk about the Levites and the, a little bit of their history, biblically speaking, and understand them a little bit. I think we already mentioned that uh, at the inception, the two the brother actually named Levi of the sons of Jacob, him and Simeon were considered sons of blood because they, in order to avenge the rape of their sister, uh, basically slaughtered an entire town. And so um, they, they had this blood on their hands. Now, on the, uh, Simeon ends up diminishing as a tribe, which we talked about, but the Levites, they prosper. Well, what happened? What changed? Well, at the time of Moses, um, there was basically a form of uh, rebellion. And when Moses asked who is going to bring judgment against those who are rebelling, the Levites, they volunteered essentially to kill their brothers who were sinning and rebelling wickedly against God. And in a sense, they made up for the bloodshed of these innocent people that they um, shed avenging their sister they kind of avenge for the sake of the Lord by shedding the blood of their brothers. And in doing that, they proved that they were willing to put God first. And in doing so, uh, the tribe of Levi was rewarded, you could say, or acknowledged for their faith in the Lord to put him even above their brothers or sinning brothers um, to be the tribe of service to the Lord. All right? And we talked about all that before um, the Levites then have the special role as servants as it comes to tabernacle worship, which will transform into temple worship. The tabernacle was that structure that the Israelites carried around, uh, essentially a big fancy tent compound 
uh, wherein they had a special room set aside where they would put the Ark of the Covenant, that golden box that had the, the manna and Aaron's staff and uh, the Ten Commandments in it, um, where, where God would receive uh, worship and atonement for sins one day of week, uh, one day of the year. Um, that tabernacle was eventually replaced by a temple later in the time of Solomon. So for now, I might interchange tabernacle with temple, but the idea is the same. The Levites had a special role in serving the Lord by being the servants of the tabernacle and then later the temple. <clears throat> uh, significantly, out of the Levites were, were to come the priesthood. The priests were the ones in the temple service who would actually be sacrificing the animals for the sake of the sins of the people. So they would, you would offer a sin offering to the priest, and the priest would be the ones actually to, to pray to the Lord, to shed the blood, and ask for the remission of sins and the atonement of sins for their brothers. So they served this intermediary role between God and between man, taking the offering, beseeching the Lord, killing the animals, shedding the blood. That was the role of the priests. And the chief of the priests or the high priest was uh, a special son of Levi or descendant of Levi, Aaron. Aaron, who was Moses' brother, the first high priest. From then on, any high priest had to come from the line of Aaron. All right, so Levites, the tribe of Levi, all of them were to serve in the temple in some way. Some of them were priests, and they would have the special role, and one man, alive at a time, uh, would be the high priest and would have to be specifically not just a son of Levi, but a, a descendant of Aaron. All right? Does that kind of track? So just getting a, a little bit, painting a little bit of the picture here of the Levites. <clears throat> now, Levites, they served in all kinds of different capacities in temple worship, from singing to being gatekeepers, there was you know janitors. There's the people you know who had to mop up all the all the blood. Uh, maybe they rotated those duties, uh, but they were essentially just servants. And of course, there's some that had flashier roles and some that had less flashy roles. Um, but everybody was intended to serve. And again, because of the special role that they had, they did not receive a portion of the land like the other tribes did, but instead they were given cities in the other tribes' allotments that they would share. Um, and this is going to number inevitably 48 cities. That's average about four cities per tribe. Six of them were those cities of refuge we talked about two weeks ago where someone who committed manslaughter could flee to. Those would be Levitical cities, Right. Um, now, you, you, you might get the impression that the reason, in a way, God would kind of embed these Levitical cities amongst the, the 12 tribes was to have like a witness of the law. I mean, the, 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 the Levitical priests and the Levites in general, they were experts of the law. That's why you have a whole book dedicated to them, Leviticus. So uh, in the wisdom of God, he had seeded throughout all the tribes these, these little cities of Levites, and you imagine some of their job would be you know, to go around and let people know, this is what God said, this is what his word said, go around and teach. And so um, if you read through Joshua 21, essentially you have <clears throat> three main groups, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Mar 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 
Merarites, <laughs> um, and uh, roughly speaking, the Kohathites received the southern kind of uh, region of the promised land to dwell in. The Merarites had the eastern portion on the other side of the Jordan, and the uh, Gershonites had the northern part of the promised land. So the second was the uh, Merarites. Yeah, yeah, you can see how to spell that in verse 7 of uh, chapter 21. Huh? Oh, on the map? Yeah, yeah, they're on the map. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Just asking. So, uh, but yeah, they're on the. They are mainly on the other side of the Jordan, east side of the Jordan. <coughs> Excuse me. So those are kind of the three major groups. Um, the Kohathites, by nature of them being in the south, where inevitably Jerusalem was going to be the capital of the Promised Land, and therefore where the temple is going to be set up, they end up being a little bit more. Um, significant and important, but it's, it doesn't matter a whole lot right now just for our sake. So uh, if you go through, that's basically what um, is being described in most of Joshua 21. And the summary is this in verse 41, the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it. So it was with all these cities. <clears throat> now, um, God also provided for the Levites in this way that in the course of their work as priests, they were also to receive a portion of the offerings that were given. So in Deuteronomy 18, um, you can turn there if you want, but um, this is how God chose to provide for the Levites as well, since they are you know, full board, supposed to be serving in the temple of God. He says in Deuteronomy 18, the, Levit- the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. That means no place in the land. They shall eat Yahweh's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. Yahweh is their inheritance as he promised them. And this shall be the priests due from the people. From those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For Yahweh your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of Yahweh, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your own towns out of all Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires to the place that Yahweh will choose and ministers in the name of Yahweh as God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before Yahweh, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he receives from the sale of, <clears throat> excuse me, of his patrimony. And uh, there's a little two there in my Bible. It says, uh, we don't actually know what that patrimony means, but maybe it's like if he decides to sell his home and move to another place, like, you know, there, there are a lot of these little, you know, places in their cities. But if someone said, no, I want to, <laughs> you know, I want to see the coast, you know, I live on the east side of the Jordan. I want to go to the coast. They, they still were to be afforded all of their um, provisions as a Levite. That's, that's kind of all that's saying. In any case, you see there the, the significant um, verse in this, verse 2, it says, They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. Yahweh is their inheritance as he promised them. So of all the tribes, they are the tribe to exemplify 
by virtue of having no inheritance in the land, that their inheritance is God alone, that they are trusting God alone. And, you know, you, you don't want to stretch things too far in terms of application at times, but I think there is a little bit of that attitude we are supposed to have as Christians living on this side of heaven. You can't take it with you, right? That anything and everything that we do, we should be demonstrating that our true inheritance is not necessarily what we're going to pass down to our descendants, to our children and their children's children, um, but that we should be demonstrating that kind of trust in the Lord that says, God is my true inheritance. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't mean don't, don't save up for your kids. The book of Ecclesiastes, um, though, is clear that you could save up for your kids and your kids could just squander it anyway and they'd ruin their lives because you, you, you created a trust fund baby or something. But um, it, it doesn't say not to do that, only don't forget when you pass on inheritance to pass on Yahweh is my inheritance, if that makes sense. Yes, Inez, do you have a question? Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, I thought, I thought you were going gonna to ask something. Okay, great. Now, there is an interesting story as it comes to service of the Lord then. So there's just one application there. Uh, again, we're, you know, as we've go, been going through these, especially these, uh, you know, past uh, seven, eight chapters of, of Joshua, is just to find little applications and um, nuggets to, to see in these inheritance, you know, allotment passages. So that, that's one just to, just to think about or that I thought was significant. Another one is this. The Levites were tasked to serve in the temple of God. There's a very famous psalm that references this, Psalm 84, if you want to turn there. But it's probably a little bit, at least some of the verses are going to be familiar there to you. Psalm 84, I won't read the whole thing, but just a few sections of it. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Yahweh of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Well, what's the psalmist talking about? He's talking about the temple. He's talking about the blessing it is to um, see the temple. And at this time, the temple had been built. It wasn't just the, the tent you know, structure, but a temple. And, and this person is marveling at how wonderful it is. Who wrote this? Well, look at the little subtext, um, usually the, like the title um, above verse 1. To the choir master, according to the getith, which might be like a melody, uh, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Well, Korah was uh, a group of Levites, and what was their job, apparently? To lead the singing in the temple. That was a job, again, of service in the temple that they would do. But here he's just talking about how wonderful it is just to be there. And when I'm away from the temple, and I, you know, it's not my turn to sing yet. He's thinking about the temple and how lovely it is to be in, uh, in God's house. Uh, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, verse 4. Verse 10 very famous verse, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You know, the sons of Korah had a pretty sweet job. They got to be the singers. You might think there's a little bit of a notoriety with that, but he's saying, you know, even if I had to be 
the, the doorkeeper. And you get the idea that maybe it was either a mundane or kind of boring job, or at least not as um, exciting as being a singer. He said, better to, to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wicked. In other words, to look out and see what everyone else is doing. Man, they must be having so much fun out there in the world. Oh, they get to go to all these parties and, you know, get drunk or whatever. And he's, you know, that's kind of a modern day, like, look at it. But he, he's saying, you know, I'd rather be the lowest man doing the lowest job, but in the temple of God, than to be envious of those who are spending their lives wickedly. Now, why am I drawing our attention uh, to these uh, sons of Korah? There's an interesting story here. Go back now to number 16. Number 16, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Genesis is the beginning. Exodus is the story of their redemption from the slavery of Egypt. Leviticus is, again, the laws given to the Levites that is going to dictate the, the people's relationship to God. And Numbers is the journey on the way to the promised land from the wilderness of Egypt. And uh, you already remember um, that they have struggled. They have struggled. They, almost from the get-go, they are rebelling, complaining, grumbling. And God has already told them, you, you, you can't even stay on track for two seconds here. You can't follow my ways for just, for just a minute. And he punishes them all for, for their disobedience and their rebellion. They will not be able to enter the land except for Joshua, right? And Caleb. So here, uh, it's gotten to a point where some in the tribes of, of Israel want to basically start a rebellion. And Korah, verse 1 of chapter 16, now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, like the Kohathites, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation. So it's kind of a big rebellion. Chosen from the assembly, well-known men, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And Yahweh is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning, Yahweh will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. So in other words, there's like a showdown. And the claim of Korah um, and these other men, and it's not a small thing. I mean, he's got the chiefs, well-known men, like famous people to contest Moses' authority and Aaron's authority uh, and, uh, and essentially say, this is not fair. You're making yourselves the, the leaders when isn't God among all of us as well. Well, the rebellious hearts uh, have already been laid bare even, you know, e- even uh, prior to this. But the story is basically that the next day, um, God opens up the ground and swallows up this rebellion. And that's how it ends. That's how God chooses. You know, God, <laughs> you know, Moses saying, it's kind of, it's going to be real subtle. God is going to choose who are his, you know, and, and those who he draws near, that's who he's going to draw near. Well, it's not subtle at all. It's like the crown opens up, 
and the rebellion falls into the depths of the earth. And that's how God chooses who are his. Now, it seems like Korah, as a, as a Levite, was possibly frustrated because he assembles himself against Moses and against Aaron. Aaron is the representative, again, of, of the priesthood, and he accuses them of, of kind of a favoritism. Well, what else could that mean except Korah thought it was not fair that Aaron could be the high priest? I mean, that, that's a little bit of reading between the lines here, but I, I, I don't think it's too far off. And in any case, they all thought it was unfair what was happening here. Now, you know, we, we, you can read the story for yourself. It seems to imply that all the sons of Korah died. All of his descendants were wiped out, but they weren't because they, they come up again later. And it is this Korah who is the sons of Korah in Psalm 84, who would go on to be the singers, who would say that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, that he'd rather be a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper in the house of God. And I bring that up just because um, they learned a lesson, the Korahites. They got the lesson. God is sovereign and Lord. He chooses whom he chooses. He does what he does. Our role is to follow, whatever that means, whatever role that is. I mean, if you know the story of Aaron, he didn't always do too well in that job either. He raised up two very horrible sons by the way. So it, it's, it's not as if there is a really special significance to Aaron when he ends up kind of um, diminishing his own name, so to speak, because of the way that he raised uh, his, his sons. It, better, it would have been better, of course, for him to have been content from the beginning. But did they learn the lesson? Yeah, they did. And they learned it and kept it to the point where they were this special, it sounds like they, the sons of Korah write a number of the Psalms. They get it. Just to serve the Lord, wherever, with whatever you got, with whatever God gave you, not in jealousy of others, not thinking God is unfair to make some, you know, pastors and some, you know, uh, very good singers, some, you know, just uh, amazing cooks or whatever it is that you feel jealous about other people's gifts and their, their talents and their service. God just wants you <laughs> to serve him and be happy with it. To be as happy to say, I, I'd rather be, you know, again, this is kind of like modernizing it. Like, I, I'd rather be at church just, you know, cleaning up the trash around the parking lot than to, to see a world that seems to be living it up on their social media and having, you know, fancy drinks and parties all the time. Better to be here, you know, doing the mundane thing uh, than to envy a world that is so lost and, and most of those people are not as happy as they, they seem to be. I mean, read Psalm 84 in comparison to number 16 and, and you'll really feel that contrast. And that's another lesson that uh, I, I, at least this time around, you know, studying the Levites, I end up studying the Levites a lot if you're you know, ever reading the Bible. Uh, but that story, just that connection, I, I, I'd never saw before, actually. I never, I've read Korah's Rebellion I've seen Sons of Korah and Psalms many times, but I never <laughs> made a connection between the two. And so it's a little bit sweeter when you read Psalm 84. Like, you know, he, he, they worked to get there. They had to see something very horrible in their lineage to understand. Just humbly serve the Lord. That's another application. Um, 
Another application of Joshua 21. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Yeah, we got time. Uh, it comes from Ezra. Now, Ezra is way after the events of Joshua. Um, it is, oh boy, I should have done the math ahead of time. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a thousand, almost an even thousand years. Okay, so a thousand years is a long time. <laughs> a thousand years is a long time, by the way. Um, so this is about a thousand years after. And uh, what has happened? Well, Israel, they, they had a golden age after the time of Joshua and Judges, which was uh, kind of a, not, not a very good time. You had David and Solomon, which was the height of the kingdom. Then you had basically a time of civil war, the north and the southern kingdom of Israel. They were kind of always bickering and fighting. And uh, eventually the northern kingdom gets judged by being swept away to Assyria. The southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer, but they're eventually swept away by Babylon because all the people are acting wickedly. And uh, we're going we're gonna to bring that up again in just a second. But uh, the, the kingdom over a thousand years just cannot get it together. And um, eventually they are placed in exile. The southern kingdom is blasted all over the Babylonian empire. And eventually the Persians come into power. And one king, Artaxerxes, has a Levitical priest working for him. He's obviously not doing his Levitical duty. But uh, the gentleman's name is Ezra. And Ezra, who is, a, um, who is serving in the house of, I'm sorry, uh, Cyrus. They say Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes comes up later. Sorry, Cyrus. Um, <clears throat> he ends up being instrumental in God's plan to return the people to Jerusalem to rebuild that which was destroyed by the Babylonians, both the temple and the city. And one of the things that he does, this Levitical uh, priest, is um, bring the word of God back into the promised land, um, which is what they do, and reinstitute in Ezra 6 the Passover, which, of course, they were not able to celebrate uh, they were the way they were supposed to because they were all in exile. So this is a Levitical priest, Ezra. Now, what's interesting in, is in Ezra chapter 8, <clears throat> you have a genealogy, again, one of those favorite uh, portions of scripture. And in Ezra 8, 15, he's gathering people to return, gather them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, <laughs> a lot of Nathans, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for jo, um, Joyarib and Elnathan, who are men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place of Kasiphia, and so on. In other words, um, he, he needed Levites. <laughs> it was very important that they had Levites, and God graciously provides Levites to Ezra. Now, this, his trouble in finding them is likely due. This is what commentators think. Why, why did not a lot of Levites come when they heard the temples being rebuilt, right? Temples, and they, they are mentioned earlier in Ezra as being there at the dedication and other things. So why is he having a hard time now to get people to, to go back permanently, not just work on a project in Jerusalem, 
you know, rebuilding and things. Why was he having a hard time to get people to permanently, let's say, relocate? And so commentators say, well, the Levites, maybe being out of the job for so long, or maybe just out of being comfortable living in a foreign land, they just didn't have like an urge or a desire to go, right, and, and serve in the temple. Wow, that would be a pretty, pretty big move, you know, like uh, we, we're pretty settled here. We've been here now in exile a few generations, and our life is here. You know, we can't just pick up and move and go to another place to serve God. We haven't even done that for, for generations. I mean, that's a little bit of reading in between the lines that the commentators make, but clearly there was a struggle to find these men. Maybe there's other reasons. Maybe they felt they weren't necessary, but I, I think it stands to reason because there's, there's other texts that, that frankly talk about um, the reluctance of some to go into uh, back to uh, repopulate the promised land, that the Levites were perhaps victims of this. And essentially church, or not church history, but uh, the history of Israel after this, okay, um, after Ezra, after they come back into the land, after the last prophet speak, Malachi, the Levites kind of fade out. So in other Jewish texts like the book of Maccabees and so on, other historical records of that time, the Levites are hardly mentioned. Um, you don't really get any real statement about them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, now, you know, but these are the Levites, you know, like they should be the ones that, well, yeah, if, if there's an opportunity there, we should go. But their comfort kept them from, from making the sacrifice to serve, let's say. Now, well, I mean, that, that's sort of the application here is uh, we're, 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 oh, yeah, Inez. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were told, you know, God did tell them in Jeremiah that you are going to be here for 70 years. You need to live in the land. You need to, you know, marry and do all the things. So you're going to be here for a while. Because they had some false prophets saying, look, you're going to be back in the land right away. And Jeremiah was saying, no, God says you're, you're here for a long haul for, for 70 years. Um, other commentators say, well, the, the Levites were not as essential, so they were not sent into exile uh, as much as the other tribes were maybe. I, I think it's the simplest thing to say is that the Levites, they didn't show up, they didn't want to. <laughs> they didn't want to go back. That's it. It's just They didn't want to go back. And I think it's an easy step to say, well, they didn't want to go back because that was not appealing to them to, to go back. <clears throat> oh, yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, they're in... In Iran, there's actually still a lot of uh, Jewish people there, too. Well, they, they, yeah, that, that, that's true. Many did not go back. That's true. Uh, no, in fact, um, well, so it, in a way what happened was, was a prophetic fulfillment because God is, is essentially, you know, he scattered them and then he said only a remnant will return. 
So that's, you know, it's kind of prophesied. And then, of course, when Jesus starts talking about he's going to gather them in from, you know, in future, you know, prophetic history, God's going to gather Jewish people from all the corners of the earth because they're scattered even to this day. Um, but all that to say, if we, if we think of, again, just trying to find some little um, hints of, of application here, uh, I think maybe there is something to say about that picture of the Levites not wanting to go back. <laughs> they get kind of comfortable. You know, remember Psalm, it's better as a day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. Better to be a, a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. But here, you know, Ezra, which would be, you know, after the, the time of the Psalms, um, by some number of years, maybe hundreds of years, look for the Levites to go back to the temple. Couldn't find them. So um, maybe some uh, contemporary applications really you know, it, it's, it's hard to want to serve the Lord sometimes because our comforts and our ease is, can be an idol. Um, we need to be careful about that. We need to have a heart that says, again, better to dwell in the courts of the Lord. <clears throat> and that doesn't mean like the church is a temple, by the way. That doesn't mean we need you here you know, 24-7, although you're always welcome to be here, by the way. I mean, this is your, your building as well, so to speak, um, for, for you uh, congregation members. Um, the, you, you can be here. That's totally fine. But it's not talking about, you know, modern application is not like we need more custodians or volunteers per se. We do, but <laughs> we do. But um, uh, it's just to say... Yeah, yeah, to, to live your, yeah, for the soundboard. We need some soundboard Levites. Maybe if we call them, <laughs> all the volunteers Levites. No, no, it, it, it's really more about like, can you be content to serve the Lord? Will you be content to serve the Lord, even in the face of comfort or that inertia of sitting still? I mean, if you've gotten used to, okay, here's, I'll be personally honest, you know, you, you you have had a lot of kids in the past few years in my household. And there's a certain amount of inertia that builds up of like, well, you know, we need to you know, take care of the kids. We can't go out as much. We need to stay at home. And, and that can start to build up like where the inertia just wants to, to stay like here and, and at home and thinking about my family. And um, I, I feared like genuinely, even though I'm a pastor here and I get many opportunities to serve, like still in my own heart, I, I, I know when I'm just not really trying to put myself out there, let's say, as a Christian, serving the Lord, being glad to do the mundane things, the important things and everything in between. Um, that can happen to me as a pastor. I can only imagine, you know, you get into the grind and I've, I've talked to others about this. You just start to get into the grind of work. You know, you got to wake up at a certain time and get things done. You got to go to bed at a certain time. You got to cook at this time and you can just get into this inertia where if the Lord were to call you to do something different for him, we might be like, oh, well, you know, I got this going on in that. And you see that in the New Testament as well. You know, Jesus called people. Huh? Hair shirts? Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. To make you uncomfortable. Yeah, make you uncomfortable all the time. Yeah, yeah, right. So um, not, not that it's like I got to inflict myself with suffering, you know, hurt, you know, hurt myself or, or sleep on a bed of nails, but um, just 
enjoy, you got to enjoy life. You do. You have to enjoy the little things. You got to enjoy life. Um, but never at the expense of like, is the Lord calling you to do something by faith? Um, is it just because it's uncomfortable? Is it bad? You know, just that question. So lastly, uh, and as I, I just kind of mentioned, by the time of Jesus, uh, you don't really get many mentions of Levites at all. You talk a lot more about Sadducees and scribes and Pharisees, right? You don't really hear a whole lot about Levites, and maybe that lends some credibility to, again, that, that historical observation that their significance just seems to be sort of diminished by the time of Jesus. You had others ruling the political and religious system at that time. And it become this complicated political religious system where, where uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, is also on the board of the Sadducees who are rich and elite and they have connections to the Roman government. And at the same time, you have these Pharisees who, who are almost like a grassroots kind of organization. They don't have any ties, let's say, to a tribe or notoriety because of who their, you know, their ancestors were, um, but they're more like um, middle-class you know, businessmen that have somehow rose to power. But nothing about Levites in the midst of, of any of that. <clears throat> Levi, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, <laughs> that, that's very true. And whether that actually associates with whether they're a Levite, you know, maybe. Um, but the last section of Joshua 21, we're going to use that to just sort of jump off. And uh, again, I, I'm, I'm trying to make these passages, like use these passages just as a jumping board or else uh, I'll read a bunch of names of places that really have no significance to you. But I, I want to think about this. I want to think about the Levites and see where that goes. Here's how Joshua 21 ends. It really ends again, the, basically the section from like 13 to 21 with the land. Joshua 21:43. Thus Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And Yahweh gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for Yahweh had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that Yahweh had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now, in a way, if you've been with us the past you know, few months, when you read that, you go, well, wait a second. I, I seem to recall you, know, you saying that they didn't drive out all the Canaanites, and that later it became a problem, that it doesn't seem like this was a picture-perfect kind of ending. But there is a sense in which this is serving as like a, um, not like a fairy tale ending, but sort of like happily ever after, or like a question mark at the end, happily ever after? Because what were they lacking at this point? Nothing. It's another way of saying, from God, they lacked nothing. God had not failed to do anything for them that he promised to do them. They could not ask anything more of God. They had nothing to blame God for. It was, you know, God was good. He had kept up his end of the deal. Does that make sense? So it's more of a statement of that than that, well, wait a second, they didn't drive out every single Canaanite and, you know, they're going to have issues later. It, it's just the idea that from the point of view of God, he'd given them everything that they needed. And 
you almost would hope that that is how the Bible could have ended, in a way, happily ever after. But the next, you know, <laughs> couple hundred of pages, <laughs> or a thousand pages, begs a differ. This was not ha- happily ever after. You would, would want that to be because, in a sense, God says, I did everything. I gave everything. That should be it. But what was the problem? It's not Yahweh. It's not God. It's them. It's their sinful hearts. And we'll even read uh, within the next few chapters, uh, and as we close the book of Joshua, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end on a happy note. It ends on Joshua essentially condemning them on his deathbed. So the Bible, or the New Testament, I should say, acknowledges this. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. It could have been, it should have been the end in Joshua 21. Everything happened as God had said. They accomplished their purpose on earth. They became the bright shining beacon of the people of God, drawing people from all nations and tribes and tongues to themselves that they might worship the one true God, the end. But instead you had failure. And now um, I I know we're jumping into the middle of kind of um, a sermon and an an argument that that the writer of Hebrews is developing. But we're going to jump around just, just, just a little bit. So chapter 3, verse 7, Hebrews. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, <clears throat> excuse me, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You got to know the context. Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, which is a Psalm of David. And David is saying, today, if you hear his voice. Well, David came after the time of Joshua, and Joshua came after the time of this rebellion. This is the rebellion I was referring to earlier in Numbers, where they're grumbling and complaining against God, and God says, for your grumbling and complaining, you're going to wander the wilderness 40 years, you're not going to enter the promised land except Joshua and and Caleb, and you're going to see my mighty works, but because you did not trust me, it's your children who are going to enter the promised land. So David is referencing that event, which preceded Joshua. Okay, is we're kind of tracking there. Um, so the writer of Hebrews is bringing this up to apply today that this today, the fact that he had to say a today means that Joshua 21, did they get the rest? Did they rest in the promised land? No. He says, therefore, in verse uh, chapter 4 now, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, they have not still entered into the rest, even from the time of Joshua or David. That the writer of Hebrews, now here, you know, 
decades after the time of Jesus, is saying, you now need to not have that stubborn heart, but you now need to enter into this rest that is being made available to you. How? Through Christ, through Jesus. That's the only way to enter into the true promised land of God. And he says in verse uh, 8, chapter 4, verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, Joshua 21. If, if, Joshua, if, if Joshua had given them, this is it. And, and Joshua was able, look, we conquered everything. Everything is good. The story ends here. David wouldn't have, have to have said later, today, don't harden your hearts. And the writer of Hebrews, now from our perspective, would not have had to say, today, if you would not harden your hearts. In other words, the promise of entering into God's rest was not fulfilled in the time of Joshua because of their sinful hearts. And that is a situation that persisted until the writer of Hebrews could say, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the only way to actually enter this promised rest is not by defeating some more Canaanites or Romans, who were the the oppressors of, of this time, but through faith in Jesus Christ, who is, which is ironic, what does he talk about right after? In Hebrews, that Jesus is the great high priest, the greatest high priest. And he is not of the line of Levi, of Aaron. He's of a different line. That way did not work, in other words. That system of the priesthood and the Levites, all that, that didn't work. That could not produce a people that could enter the rest of God. All the way up until the time of Jesus is a fact. The Levites could not do that. Here they were toiling, generation after generation, year after year, day of atonement, offering sacrifices every day on the behalf of sin, but they could not ever make up the gap of their sins that's being created. Only Jesus, by virtue of being a great high priest, unlike, you know, in the line of Melchizedek, I'm going to start preaching Hebrews, but... um, in a different order and kind, not of the earthly kind, you could say, but of the real man and God mediator, Jesus Christ, could we have the opportunity to enter in to the true promised land, the true peace, to eternal life with God through the forgiveness of our sins by the sacrifice of Jesus, who is not only the great high priest, he's also the perfect sacrifice. He's also the temple. He's all of it because all those things were always intended to point to him. Now, Joshua 21, I think, imagine when you read that, imagine like actually getting what we call the American dream. All right. And let's say for the sake of argument, it's it's the, the, the fully paid off house. It's the 2.1 kids or whatever it is. It's the dog, the white picket fence, and all those things. Like you actually got it. That's the feeling of Joshua 21. Like you got it, right? You, you got all that you could want. You couldn't ask for anything more from God. You're there. Does it guarantee faithful living just because you got everything that you think you would ever need from, from God in terms of like, those physical provisions? Well, no. I mean, it's almost dangerous. Gosh, I 
I get almost tired of reading stories about how this picture-perfect family on social media, there was turmoil, and then the husband, I mean, the recent one was this husband who killed his two daughters. They were like four and six, and his pregnant wife, right? I don't know if you remember that. Stuffed them in like an oil drum and then lied about it. You know, was freaking out on the news like that someone had killed his family. People believed him. And now you look on all their social media, they're the perfect, you know, family. But there was, there was rot in there. There was sin in there. They had everything you thought they, that anyone could be totally comfortable and happy with and be happy as a family. But sin, unless sin is taken care of, we will be like the people at Joshua's time, the people at the time of the judges, the people at the time of David and Solomon and every king afterwards until the time of Jesus. We, God provides for us everything that we need for life and godliness. And the most important thing he provides is a new heart and a new nature. That's the new covenant that is purchased by Jesus Christ as the high priest, as the sacrifice, as the temple, as the whole thing. He gives us a new heart because we could have everything. We could have the fairy tale ending, Joshua 21. That's the way it's supposed to read. It's like a fairy tale ending and still screw it up if we're not different people, if we're not changed from the inside out, so to speak. If we don't have real, uh, a real um, nature that has been transformed, a true godly nature transformed by God. And so I think that was kind of the last sort of application as I read through Joshua 21 is just realizing wow, they really had everything that they needed. What, how could they still screw it up? How could they, I mean, Joshua's going to say like a chapter later, you know, don't intermarry with the people that you didn't get rid of. Don't intermarry with them. Oh yeah, yeah, we won't. They're married to them at that moment. <laughs> like, this is like that golden calf thing. Um, you know, thou shalt not make a graven inventory of yourself. And what are they doing at the base of Mount Sinai? They're doing that. That is insidiousness of sin. That's why we need Jesus Christ, perfect high priest, um, sacrificed for us, uh, someone not in the order of Levi. That, that plan failed. It didn't work. But God's true plan was a perfect God, man, to be our intercessor. So any other thoughts or questions about Joshua 21 before we close up? So you kind of, it's been interesting to just try and look at these different tribes and, and just see where that, you know, the Lord kind of takes my thoughts studying this and looking at this. No questions? Yes, Ethan. Two different ethnicities? Yeah, yeah I think so. What what uh what what about this prompts that question? Oh oh the intermarriage thing. Yeah. Well well the the the, the reason the, the intermarriage was wrong is because it was with people uh, pagans who hated God. So the the issue wasn't necessarily that they were of a, another ethnicity; it's that they were of another faith. You know. Uh, yeah yeah yeah, and that's that's almost exclusively. Um, why that's prohibited. It's not because of the ethnicity per se or the, the DNA. It's because they, they're, they're, they're pagans um, who will lead their heart astray. That was the warning that Moses actually gave to the people entering the promised land. If you get married with them, they're going to turn your heart astray. 
So it's not about um, so much their, um, you know, ethnic background. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and we'll, we'll get there. We'll maybe talk about that more since you brought it up when we get to um, not intermarrying, you know, don't, don't marry, uh, be married to those. It's like the remnant of the nations remaining among you. Don't make marriages with them. Um, so that they associate with them and they with you um, because you will go and serve other gods and bow down to them, ultimately. Oh, yeah, right, right. Same idea, yeah. Any other comments, questions about Joshua 21? Yes, Benjamin. Um, you probably talked about some stories of Joshua, right? That the number of Yeah, yeah. So essentially, Joseph, um, you know, back in Genesis, Joseph asked for his sons to be blessed, to receive his portion. So Joseph basically gets a double portion. I mean, he's the one that saved the lives of all his brothers. He gets a double portion of blessing, but essentially one for each of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, yeah. Yeah, 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 in a way, yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't talk about it too much, but... You can, there's sometimes a trickiness to the, the way that the tribes of Israel are listed uh, at times. Like sometimes one is omitted, another one's added. Um, but at least here in Joshua, it's, it's his sons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Joshua, his, um, or um, you mean... Um, Joseph, yeah, Joseph, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's basically because um, he, yeah, he gets extra bless. He's the guy that saved the whole, you know, the whole family. So you get two blessings, Joseph, and uh, he. It's like he, he like he like spends it on his kids and not himself, kind of in a way, like. Oh no 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 no! This is this is. Uh, yeah yeah, like four hundred years have passed from, well now it's like. 400 plus some, but they were in, you remember, uh, the beginning of Exodus is the end of like Joseph's life. And then it's like 400 years of slavery, approximately 400 years of slavery. And then Moses. So that's a, that's a separate thing. So um, they were in slavery. Joseph dies and they're good in Egypt. Like the Pharaoh views them favorably because Joseph spared them the famine and everything. But then a, another Pharaoh rose a power who did not know Joseph or the Jews, and he starts to enslave them. So for 400 years, approximately, he enslaves them. The people cry out finally, and uh, the Lord says, you know, hears. He sends a deliverer, Moses. Moses then um, confronts Pharaoh along with his brother Aaron, and they eventually, after the 10 plagues, they, 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 they're free and they go into the wilderness on the way. It's almost like they take one step out of Egypt, and everyone's like, are we there yet? What's going on? I'm hot. I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty, right? Like, uh, like your kids, like worse than your kids, right? So, um, and that's why God says, you know what? You guys, you're, they did worse things. They did much worse things than that, than your kids ever did, I'm sure. Um, and for that, God says, no. Now, even though you guys saw all of my wonders in Egypt, none of you are going in, except Joshua and Caleb. And you're going to wander for 40 years until you all die, except Joshua and Caleb. And then, you know, uh, your kids will enter into the promised land. So that clears up the timeline. I know I get it confused all the time. I got to remind myself. 
So any other questions? Okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you again. Just um, anytime I can look through your word and, and make connections and see how you work, especially when you see things connect from different times. You see um, scripture writers, men inspired by the Holy Spirit, referencing other things that holy inspired, inspired men wrote. That's, that's significant. And just to see these uh, different connections of peoples and times, to see how you redeem, how you don't forget, how you forgive, how you ultimately have a plan and purpose for all the things that happen, even if it's to give us a good example of a bad example. But we thank you, Lord, for every jot and tittle because we learn from it and we grow from it. Um, there's always something to get uh, from studying and reading your word. So I pray, Lord, that for whatever might have um, struck our hearts or convicted us or encouraged us, we'd cling to it this week and take it into us, uh, take it in with us to our workplaces, our homes, our relationships, and that it would bear fruit in our lives. I pray for the time of fellowship around the table, that it would be sweet and that we'd be able to enjoy um, that unity of spirit together. And bless the food then, Lord, and the time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.